Hi Angelo, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Selima Talks podcast today. The podcast of today is about the fascinating world of AI tools in early pharmaceutical research. My guests of today are David Egan, CEO of Core Life Analytics, and Philip Kainz, CEO of KML Vision. I look forward to informative conversations with both and inspiring thoughts on today's topic. Hello, David, and hello, Philip. Welcome to our interview. Um, it's a great pleasure to me to have you both here today to talk about um, fascinating machine learning and also artificial intelligence and drug discovery. Um, you are both scientists and CEOs of your own biotech companies, and you're undoubtedly experts in this field, I guess. Um, I look forward to learn more about you and your companies and the collaboration as well. David, could you give us a little insight into your company and tell us how you got excited about machine learning and AI and drug discovery? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, and th first of all, thanks, Stefan, for the uh, the opportunity to come and uh, and join the chat. Um, I'm yeah, David Egan, the CEO of Core Life Analytics, and uh, my background originally was in molecular biology. I didn't have a a, a data science background, um, but what I my career turned into a career of using automation for biology. So helping biologists to do automated experiments, mostly for drug discovery. And so as part of that later in my career, I ended up uh, generating, helping my clients generate uh, uh, large amounts of complex data. And, uh, and then that's where I started to get into the data science because I needed to help them analyze this data. And so that turned into uh, the development of a tool with uh, uh, the person, Vinan Dompta, who became the co-founder of my company. Uh -huh. And uh, and then, yeah, it was a classic startup situation. And so now what we do is at Core Life Analytics is we deliver software uh, to biologists to help them to analyze complex data. And so, of course, one of the, the methods that we, we use in this is, you know, machine learning or as it's more commonly called artificial intelligence. So that's our interest in AI yeah. is giving biologists access to tools like AI you know, to help them you know, find drugs more quickly. Yeah. Wonderful and fascinating. Philip, I'm also curious about your company and your motivation to work in machine learning and AI. Can you give us a brief overview? Absolutely. Thanks also for having me. Uh, again on your podcast, uh, I feel like we're really honored <laughs> to be here. Um, so I'm a computer scientist by background and uh, I did my PhD mostly in the field of histology, histological image analysis. And uh, my motivation was that those big images that are acquired through scanning um, cannot easily be analyzed with standard tools. So um, I was also interested in generating uh, methods for the more convenient handling and uh, analysis of those uh, image data. And um, I founded the company together with my co-founder, Michael, in 2016. And we developed the company from a service-driven company to a, a product-oriented company uh, over the last years. And uh, since a couple of years now, we are developing and operating the Ecosa platform. It's a software as a service um, that allows um, people without any coding skills to train their own AI for image analysis. 
um, the, the, the application spectrum is very broad um, from in vitro uh, to histology to um, electron microscopy. We are pretty agnostic to the applications. And uh, when I met David, uh, we had an, a mutual overlapping um, application field, which was the high content analysis. And uh, so this got us really excited and exploring a little more uh, what we can do there uh, because our companies have so similar visions in terms of you know um, providing the best possible user experience uh, for biologists and enabling them to to be faster in their work to have less stress in their work and uh, still get you know um, everything done in the time pressure that is increasing too mm. so it's very interesting to hear that you both are working together or where you're companies are working together. Can you tell us or share more about uh, the benefits you see in this collaboration between your companies? Yeah, I think, you know, one thing is that, you know, we're well connected with a lot of, you know, biologists and in, in biotech companies and, and pharmaceutical companies, um, people who already use our software uh, within their workflows. And we're, we're always looking for you know, different, more advanced technologies to give them access to. And that's one reason we're working with Philip is because of their, you know, vast expertise in, you know, in machine learning and AI and especially image analysis. That's something we'd be interested in, in uh, making available to, uh, to our, uh, our customers. Yeah, and vice versa for us. It's, of course, we are a little more upstream um, when we compare the uh, positioning of data analytics uh, that the part that David is doing. And uh, we are, of course, drawing the line at some point. We don't want to reinvent the wheel. Uh, we are relying on data science experts uh, who make sense of these vast amount of features we can generate from images. And um, David and his team, they're really good at you know making sense out of this and, and um, providing that at a level with integration in the cloud. That's also one uh, very big advantage. Um, to, to the to the target audience and being able to provide a commonly you know usable uh, solution that is uh, definitely the goal of our collaboration yeah i see the combination of your expertise and companies could certainly lead to exciting developments and i think they substantially can support pharmaceutical research well now let's let's start with our discussion as mentioned or as clear the topic is the benefits of machine learning and ai or artificial intelligence for pharmaceutical research and i think this is extremely relevant and i'm sure insights for especially your insights and experiences will provide us with valuable information so let's start with the discussion and this leads me to my um, first question what are the concrete advantages you see by using machine learning and artificial intelligence um, for the pharmaceutical industry so if i may start with that i think the the way that uh, people are using devices now to generate data um, is at a level where um, analytical capabilities at the moment uh, cannot keep up so um, when we introduce our methodologies, I'm speaking now for the for the image analysis, we can um, generate so much um, so much more meaning from this data that is automatically generated, and it makes it makes it uh, much easier to automate, you know, uh, bigger screens, bigger um, bigger amounts of data, and um, with with those tools, you're able to augment the workflows and, and enhance you know, the tooling people are using to achieve their goals. 
and AI is uh, very adaptive um, to so many different things. And the way we use it is a little different from the way uh, Core Life Analytics is using it. Uh, but still, uh, the, the principles are, are pretty similar. And uh, it's, it's super nice to see the, the versatility of this platform in so many different facets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess from, from our, you know, from our point of view, when we're, we're, you know, looking at, you know, the way biologists are working, you know, in pharma and, and, in, and in biotech, um, you know, a lot of it is about, you know, increased, you know, accuracy, um, you know, increased reproducibility uh, and also uh, speed and efficiency. I mean, if you look at kind of the, you know, the basic, you know, way in that machine learning and AI can work, you know, you take, you know, large amounts of data and you, you, you use those to build, build, build a model that will help you, for example, in a simple way, for example, maybe to differentiate between, you know, a disease state and a normal state. Okay, and and building those models takes a lot of work and a lot of computational power and a lot of data, and we can talk more about that later. But mm -hmm. then once you have that model and you have an accurate model, then you can apply it very quickly. And 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 a a uh, you know someone who doesn't have let's say massive expertise in data science, when they have access to good models, then they can use those to quickly identify, for example, yeah, the molecule that's going to do a certain job. Uh, this could be a chemical to, to cure disease. Um, you know, there's a, there's a company in the U.S. called Recursion Pharmaceuticals who mm -hmm. are, you know, this is their whole bread and butter. And it's all about this image-based uh, technologies that, that uh, Philip and I are, are, are so, you know, um, uh, involved in. And, uh, yeah, it's about identifying images that are disease state and images that are normal state and then finding drugs that drive you know, um, cells towards the normal state to, to cure, let's say, a, a, a disease. And I think that is, that's one of the, these are some of the big benefits. And, and yeah, accuracy as well, taking the human, you know, the human bias out of a, a, a kind of an analysis um, so that you get a more, yeah, um, uh, a more unbiased approach. Mm -hmm. Now, there are, yeah, as we'll talk later on. Mm. <laughs> yeah, there are, are some problems because yeah, uh, uh, that can arise with you know these various models. But but that that's the potential. Yeah, talking you know, about the problems. AI, you know. Sorry for interrupting you, David. Mm. Talking about the problems, what are the typical challenges or known potential drawbacks you are facing when uh, developing machine learning or AI uh, related tools and software? Yeah, I think the, the, definitely Philip should start here. He struggles <laughs> with it more than we do. So I think you need to differentiate between two different uh, aspects. Maybe okay. one, when you have a very specific use case and you try to solve that to the best possible extent. And the other would be if you provide a tool that others can use to, uh, to basically apply it to their um, specific problem. Um, in, in the first instance, I think, a big challenge is to understand, get all the data in the right quality and quantity um, to basically build a model that is of relevant performance. Um, because, of course, you hear all these um, rumors, more data, better models, but that is not necessarily true. There is a certain saturation curve um, you need to keep in mind. And uh, depending on how diverse your data is, 
um, you will get there into, into this situation uh, earlier or later. Um, but of course, um, since we mostly deal with supervised learning, at least in our domain, um, when we consider image segmentation, for example, um, the data annotation is, is still a lot of work. And uh, to, to actually be able to assess how good a model is, is definitely one of the biggest challenges um, because it's driven by so many different variables. Is your data uh, representative? You know, um, did you train your model correctly? Um, the, the, the thing with AI or modern deep neural networks is that you, you cannot really rely that you obtained the best possible model on that data. That's, that's not a fact um, compared to, you know, maybe some other machine learning models like support, support vector machines where you can kind of mathematically uh, guarantee basically that this is the optimal solution. Um, however, you know, these this different techniques um, on how to include unlabeled data, but you need to assess, okay, what is the noise that you bring into that? So what is the real value of unlabeled data? Because as I said earlier, you can generate so much data, but uh, not all of that is really val valuable. And uh, I think, yeah, this uh, pooling, annotations, you know, bootstrapping models that, that are techniques you can use to, to evolve, but it is definitely a trial and error. Yeah, and then, you know, again, from our standpoint, where we're thinking about, you know, the usability, um, uh, you know, for, uh, let's say, biologists, it's all about making the process more understandable for them. And, you know, and, and so if we have a tool, let's say, where we're helping them to pull in data and, and, and build models, um, you know, you, you want to be able to point them towards the, uh, the things that may be causing problems. Uh, you want your software to be, in a way, some sort of decision supportive, okay, so that it can point out to them, oh, yeah, maybe this isn't a good idea. Yeah, you can do it, but you know, under, try and understand the uh, the consequences of it, and that's that that's essential um, because there's no way we're going to get everybody, you know, you know, trained to be you know experts mm -hmm. in this, and so uh, and and this is a, a kind of a a progression in every technological field, you know. In the early days, it's something that's used, you know, by specialists. In the first days of, of let's say, automobiles and the internal combustion engine, you know, everyone who owned a car had a mechanic who rode beside it, who rode beside them. And so when the car broke down, the mechanic would be able to fix it, and off they'd go again, you know. Um, and then eventually, it just becomes something, yeah, standard that anyone can use. And actually, you can't even work on your car anymore, mm. you know. Mm -hmm. You have to take it to, you know, the shop or something because it's just it's such a yeah, it's just a device, right? And yeah. It'll, it'll, it'll be the same with, you know, with, uh, uh, with AI is gradually we'll learn how to build, um, you know, tools uh, that will probably include AIs to build other, other you know, <laughs> models or whatever, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, so these, these are, uh, I think, some of the, you know, the challenges. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's very important to ensure that there's a decisive quality and reliability of these tools. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and okay. that people understand, you know, people can easily understand, let's say, the qual quality of the model that they've built. Mm -hmm. Okay, 
Mm-hmm. And so that they can see a, a red flag if it's something that's, you know, biased or something like this, and, and that it helps them to validate models that they're building, things like that, you know, just take them through the process. Mm-hmm. I think the validation is a very good point here. Um, we've actually had a interesting project um, about two years ago, where mm-hmm. we took a look, uh, especially at trustworthy AI. So what elements are actually essential uh, to make a person trust um, an AI system, um, even if it's very specific to solving one use case? It's not a general AI. We're not talking about that. But um, we were thinking, okay, we need to provide, you know, uh, a lot of insights and, and um, I don't know, heat maps and attention maps and whatnot. But in the essence, it was um, not the technical stuff they were uh, interested in learning, but rather how to coexist, you know, with a, with that and, and, and what to do with it. That was much more important than having all the tools that every data scientist dreams about <laughs> because they can't interpret it on the spot. They would need to have a, a learning, a training phase, and then they could do it, of course, and they're smart people but there's just not enough time. So all the tools we are building, uh, they need to kind of reflect uh, validation steps and, and make it easy to understand where it is good, where it is bad um, in terms of performance. Do you think that these changes and challenges um, that come with um, uh, the use of machine learning and AI now in these days, will also bring changes to the roles and competencies that are um, important for medical researchers, physiologists, physicians, pharmacists, and so forth? Um, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I've, you know, I talked to, you know, people like pathologists about this. I've talked to pathologists about this in the past. And it's, um, you know, th- there is still, you know, a lot of resistance to these types of methods in, in certain areas. You know, some, you know, pathologists still, you know, they want to look at slides down a microscope. I mean, there's still some people out there who don't even want to see the slides on a computer screen. They just want to look at them down a microscope. Um, and, uh, yeah, and people, I think, are, yeah, they're not crazy about black box solutions. And so... Um, I think one of the best ways to kind of introduce it into some of these areas is to, again, make it supportive so that it can help them to, let's say, prioritize certain things. So, for example, if, if, you, if you take something like you want to diagnose a certain cancer and you have, you know, 500 slides, a certain small percentage of them are, you know, are probably going to be positive or something. Okay. Um, and so it could help them to kind of prioritize the ones that are more likely to be positive to get a good you know, um, a good, uh, uh, then, you know, yeah, an, a good kind of analysis from the pathologist who can confirm that, okay? Um, and then the good thing about these is some of these ways then of doing that, you know, then it helps to improve the annotation and things like this. If there are errors, the pathologist can pick it up and then that helps to, yeah, to, to retrain, uh, improve the model, you know? Um, so, uh, but yeah, I think, you know, it, the big win in many cases is is uh, efficiency. Mm. Being able to do things more quickly mm. and being able to get through more work. Uh, uh, yeah, being able to, yeah, speed uh, uh, and efficiency. You know. Yeah, yeah perhaps with uh, without losing any quality. 
because this is, you know, of course, the, the high standard that we need to uh, pursue. And uh, as soon as people, you know, will learn how to use this technology, um, that the, or the, the faster they will adapt to putting that into routine. I mean, there's uh, still a big, you know, community um, of early adopters uh, who are exploring different aspects of this technology. And um, the, we had many, you know, interactions with people from the industry and they say, hey, I have this use case, I can't solve it with any other tool. And that is uh, perhaps a, a bit of a disadvantage to actually start using the uh, a new technology, because if you don't know what your standard is producing on this data, mm. then how would you evaluate if a new technology is better? So um, this is definitely something uh, we are trying to avoid in the first place. We start uh, try to start with data sets or with use cases where people are familiar with the outcome and how they arrived at this outcome and whether they can find themselves and identify themselves with AI technology. But that, learn uh, that learning curve is definitely going to be there. And uh, they need to understand, okay, this is a tool I can diligently use for that. Yeah, I, I get a bit frustrated sometimes that a lot of these uh, kind of the, the hype about the, the evils of AI and things like this and and when you know people oh you, you don't want this kind of faceless or kind of uh, um, this sort of anonymous or uh, you know black box making decisions or whatever but a lot of the problems that are around you know the ethics and the problems that will come with AI are the same problems that have always been around whenever you have you know larger organizations that have power okay uh, and whether this was the you know the railway companies in the 19th century or the oil companies the 20th century or technology companies media companies whatever whenever you you know have a lot of power concentrated in one place <laughs> bad things happen um and it's the same it'll be the same with you know with artificial intelligence because what you'll have is a lot of data you know being used to contribute you know to these various models and then you know how they're used may or may not be problematic um, you know, uh, yeah. If, if let's say you're talking about, you know, building models for uh, uh, for healthcare and things like this, are the you know the populations representative things like that? Um, you know, I mean that's already a problem with drug development. You know, our drug development is done for you know rich Western white people. Mm. You know, um, and and there's a lot of problems with the lack of of ethnic uh, diversity in you know things like clinical trials and stuff like this you know um and so a lot of these issues are going to be the same you know who owns you know who owns the uh, the models you know where the data is coming from you know are there uh, is there you know informed consent and things like this um so it's yeah a lot of these problems are nothing new but and we'll probably do about as good a job of solving them as we have in all these other <laughs> in all these other domains you know so um yeah it's uh yeah i think it's yes. same old you, same old stuff you know you, you were mentioning that um this transparency needs to be established at some point you know um how how you get there um in order to earn the trust of the public uh, is probably also 
a little depending uh, which regulations are in place, um, who is actually in charge of trying to make a standard, trying to, you know, uh, create verification processes or quality gates for your for your developed model. Um, there are some, uh, yeah, some some certifications that you can already in, obtain. I don't really know how well accepted this would be because when you have a certification um, that is not known to the industry, you don't have to do it because nobody or it won't give you an, a competitive advantage if you have it. Mm -hmm. So um, even if that certifies that you're compliant uh, with some process of best practices or whatever, um, if you wouldn't do the best practices, you wouldn't be able to survive anyhow because the model wouldn't work and wouldn't be robust. So I think if you follow that, do the a, a good a good bunch of education actually in the in the market, and um, work to your highest standards on your own in your company with your clients, I think you will be able to move that uh, dial a little bit on gaining more trust into into this uh, technology. Mm -hmm. Are there further ethical concerns and risks associated with these tools? Do you have anything further in mind? I think, you know, maybe down the road when, you know, you know, things like AIs are, are, are used in, you know, other more kind of predictive ways, you know, especially when it's pulling together data from a lot of different sources, you know, when you're talking about, um, almost this kind of minority report type of situation where, for example, you know, when, you know, there's access to a lot of your kind of previous, you know, health data that someone could predict that you're going to be susceptible to a certain disease and maybe, yeah, um, you know, insurance companies could make decisions based on that that maybe you won't like. Um, uh, that is, you know, those are the type of things that are probably some of the scariest um uh, aspects um of this um yeah i think it's you know. it's rather on uh, a globally economically scale um as soon as there's you know the masses involved into um either benefiting or suffering from those decisions um there will definitely be some discussions on uh how how, how well did you kind of do the qc on your data what is basically the, the driver to actually develop something like this that, that is so powerful that would affect you know, humanity. Um, I don't think we are quite there yet. Uh, we have to still solve so many smaller problems at first. And uh, I would be actually very um, yeah, disappointed if that gets out of hand and there would be one company or one you know, entity uh, mm -hmm. creating such a monopoly uh, for decision making that would affect public health in the end. Yeah, yeah. I know that the the pharmaceutical companies do worry about some of these, you know, technologies. And I think one of one thing that they worry about is the idea that a company like Google, for example, uh, you know, would have be able to develop technology where they could mine you know, a lot of public information uh, very effectively and that essentially then they would, you know, you know, be able to have kind of corner the market in that. And then the, all the pharma companies would have to go to them 
to to buy access to this model where they could then use to let's say identify targets or identify molecules things like that um and uh yeah that that would be a that's not too far-fetched a concern i mean mm. you know we you know we already uh, yeah the the standard search tool is that everyone uses is one company yeah you know uh just one company yeah. and so uh so it, it it's you know that idea is not so far-fetched I and mean, it's ironically the drive to you know open source all this you know scientific uh information actually only feeds into that uh that fear uh because the more of that scientific information that is that is open source then the more valuable um you know uh, a tool uh, would be that could efficiently you know dig through all that information combine it with all these uh you know data from repositories and things like that to come up with you know a, a way to for example yeah quickly identify you know targets that are more likely to be to be useful in you know a certain disease okay mm -hmm. and um you know if you could you know like i don't know what like one in 50 or maybe even 100 projects that actually starts for drug discovery ever ends up getting to market what if you could if what if by using you know um you know some sort of you know ai platform that you could you know maybe yeah make that four times more efficient right yeah that would save you a hell of a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people would be banging on your door to get access, mm. you know, uh, to that. Um, so, yeah, so, so you know, I, I think a lot, a, lot, a lot of people were, were, you know, Google are, yeah, they're very interested in, uh, uh, in life sciences. We bump into them, you know, a lot. And, uh, you know, it's kind of right in their wheelhouse. Huge amounts of information out there. How can we kind of synthesize it all, pull it together to, you know, make uh, better predictions, more accurate uh, predictions? That's the idea. Coming back from coming from the global issues, coming back to more methodologies, methodological issues. What are pitfalls or sources of error do you have in mind, Philip, that can occur occur in the implementation of machine learning and AI for your research pro, uh, projects? So. I think the expectation of when you have access to AI that you can solve it mm -hmm. uh, is a big problem because mm -hmm. it's not given that you can solve this That's problem. Yeah. Um, as I said, there are so many variables and if your data doesn't just contain this, in our case, visual cues to discriminate, you know, two different disease states, then you can cannot really solve it. I mean, you can go higher dimensional and higher dimensional and becomes even more opaque and you can't really interpret what it's doing and at some point i'm almost sure that uh, if you go deep enough uh, basically you will find some difference um, if that is causal i don't know mm. how can you check that if you're um, so deep into you know this high dimensional space that you basically just introduced a, a model selection bias because you selected the model that just works for you <laughs> so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah, in the yeah, end yeah. And um, one, one other thing is that you uh, should always kind of do this in different steps. So um, if, you, if you tend to work hypothesis driven, um, then of course there is a certain step of, you know, getting closer to your answer. 
you shouldn't start with edge cases, for example. You start with the, the normal thing, try to, let's say, in, in, a, in a Gaussian curve, get the 67% right, and then mm -hmm. take care of the rest and, and, and try to assess and, and work with validation methods that assert the stability of a method. And um, as soon as you know, okay, you have a stable model that behaves on this data, you can go and expand on the, um, on the, on the other data or edge cases. And probably you can't really um, cover all the, the cases, um, but you should at least know what your model is doing in those situations. And there can be, you know, adverse attacking your own AI just to make sure, okay, what is happening? So um, try to break it, for example, in, in your QC. And uh, that goes a little bit, you know, beyond um, the standard that's um, what, what means, okay, I validate on a held out test set. That, that's a pretty basic thing you need to do. But going beyond that uh, is definitely um, required and uh, sources of error in, in that sense is just, you know, selection bias for your data, having too much label noise, which means you have, don't have, in the supervised learning setting, uh, you don't have an, a consensus on your, on your labels, which is super often the case because the biology is continuous. You cannot say now this is in that state and now this is in that state. So there will always be some, uh, some, some wiggle room uh, as, we, as we call it. And uh, if the model is able to catch that um, to a certain extent where it's producing a consistent and systematic error, you're in, you're in luck you, that this is good. Uh, whereas um, if it produces like random errors, you're not better than a human. And uh, you should always be aiming for these stoic repetitive tasks to be better than a human. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think again, it's it's the involvement in humans in the process is the problem. Um, you know, as kind of Philip was kind of talking about there. You know, sciences has traditionally been kind of hypothesis driven, uh, but unfortunately, hypothesis often becomes dogma. And you know, this really struck home to me in the early days of of our company when, you know, we would be working with you know, with, with users and, and, and customers initially. And, you know, you know, the idea was they would do image analysis to generate numeric descriptors of what was going on in, in cells. And then, yeah, they would import that into our software and then they'd be able to visualize these and graphs and things like this. So that you could see the differences, you know, clearly the differences between phenotypes. This is a uh, cells where you have, you know, nothing going on here cells where you have something going on. And, you know, very frequently you'd have these cell biologists who would show you two images and they say yes you see these are different because here you can point out the differences in this one and yet you don't see as much in that one and then okay well let's have a look in in the data and so and then we you know run them through the image analysis extract the numbers and then when we'd actually see uh, sometimes when we'd see these you know data visualized in a way where it's just you know spots on on a, uh, on a on a two-dimensional graph <laughs> there's no difference <laughs> and it's it was really you could you could tell it was just human bias you know mm -hmm. there was a hypothesis there yeah if i if i knock out the function of this protein it's going to affect i'm sure it's going to affect this process because i read a paper about that or something and 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 uh and you know and then of course people see certain images as philip said that are yeah they're not representative 
you know and and they're just and, and it's not fraud or anything it's just human nature to want to you know, to be right and and to want <laughs> want to see yeah. the result that you want to see want to see and the, the dogma, yeah. yeah and then that kind of then can feed into things like yeah yeah like building models and things like that and uh, and and annot a special annotation and this is kind of one of the biggest problems is you know uh, the annotation of the data that's required to build you know build certain models and um yeah so it's it's uh you know yeah removing that kind of bias and things like that that's you know that's critical you know? yeah i experienced this scenario a lot and it was always very difficult also i had the statistic on my side to convince the elder scientists that their dogma or their hypothesis isn't true and yeah. um yeah, yeah. um Going a step further, uh, coming to cell painting, which has not been possible without machine learning and AI tools now that we have in, in place. How does this approach has already improved the efficiency and the accuracy of identifying new potential compounds on your drugs? What do you think? Or do you have already experiences? Yeah, I, I mean, we a, a lot of our customers are using using uh, the, the cell painting, you know, technique, and um, and it appears from 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 talking to people in the field, there are some things that it's you know that it's you know clearly good at, um, you know, some things maybe not as as good as as you know maybe people would have hoped a lot of the original kind of hype was oh you can use it to figure out the mechanism of action of your of an unknown molecule things like this um yeah things often aren't so easy um where where i see people having the most success with it are, are probably in things like you know toxicology also things what, what's called lead hopping in, in small molecule discovery um where you, know, you can you know Take a molecule of interest, you know, generate a profile, uh, compare that to other profiles, look at those molecules, and then use that to inform um, the medicinal chemistry to uh, to help you more quickly improve uh, improve the activity of molecules, or to come up with a um, a very different you know type of molecule, so that yeah, you can make bigger jumps in uh, in medicinal chemistry. So these are the things that that uh, uh, that uh, I think are very useful. But you know, like everything else, you know, the the you know, cell painting. Often you're depending on having a good, you know, repository of data to compare your the data that you're generating compared with with uh, uh, with with that data. And again, the old problem of reproducibility, you know, raises its ugly head. And uh, and uh, and these are definitely. Uh, you know, pretty serious challenges, you know, reproducing across different sites, people using different instruments, things like this. Yep. I think that um, the way that you can actually generate a lot of fingerprint data for, for cells, for, for objects, for plate level, well level data, it gives you the opportunity to look at different scales at a problem. So um, you can, uh, basically take the meta, meta perspective, you can try to uh, figure out the different levels, what's the difference um, to, to pull that data and, and, and be able to, to do a drill down, you know, when there's something 
odd behaving or if you do like a, a, a plot of your data and, and you see okay there's just one big bunch of, uh, of, of dots in the middle um, how can you basically add meaningful information to differentiate those dots um, to, to kind of disentangle the biology which is of course the goal of, of this um, um, to understand what's what's happening there um, I think the AI or ML methods they can be used in very different forms. So once would be if you uh, if you take cell painting and you know there's different approaches how you can do this. I mean we use a segmentation approach because it's it's interpretable. You see if if the cell was segmented correctly or if there are parts that are not uh, in line with what you are expecting. Um, I think there's. You know, you can go full black box. You can say, okay, I just want to predict a random number, a random sequence of numbers. It's not really random, but it's a representation of the image, of the of the objects, of whatever. And then you try to cluster that into in a high dimensional space. But uh, you lose the ability to track what is happening along the way. So um, when there is, for example, a model trained on. Uh, the CHAMCP uh, pilot data set, for example, um, we know, okay, there are two different cell types in the uh, in this data set. We know that these compounds are in there and so on. And then you, you, you train your model, you validate your model on this specific data set. Um, and once you go like outside of this lab environment, um, there is anything else that can happen. So uh, to assess also, okay, what, what is the potential you know, behavior of the model when it encounters something in the wild that it didn't see before. Does it cluster that or create features for, for this specific state into one of the compounds? Is it, you know, reproducible? Um, does it happen all the time? If you repeat and training the model, does your second model behave the same way? Then there must be something related to that. But um, as people are doing technical and biological replicates in, in the screening process, um, there's definitely uh, a need for, for cross-validation in not only cell painting, but in general in AI methods, because you may accidentally select a very representative and good training set, uh, but once you perturbate your entire pool and do this, repeat this again, uh, you may up with a crap, end up with a crappy model. And uh, you need to make sure that this is a consistent quality. So I think that is uh, definitely an effect um, they will they will have also on identifying new compounds and drugs. Mm -hmm. But to be honest, I'm I'm very, I'm very convinced about cell painting. Not to get me uh, wrong, but on the other hand, all the cell painting data we're looking at these days are relying to a very very limited number of cell types, which are cell models, and uh, on a very little limited number of impact points i would say we don't have any live analysis we don't we have uh, let's say about two to, to three in the maximum time points we look at the impact of the compound is this sufficient enough to have reliable data yeah i mean you're talking about a, a snapshot in time and and ideally point. of course ideally you know you would have you know concentration you know dose you know, uh, multiple doses of your molecules and multiple times and yeah, maybe even multiple, uh, you know, cell types. Yeah. Um, uh, 
maybe even 3D approaches to look what, what how does this reorganize yeah. the cells? Yeah. Now. Yeah. But you know, when when you're you know when you look at the types of environments, and again, this is something that we are really tuned into because we're talking to you know biologists throughout the coal face. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's just not practical at the moment. No. And mm -hmm. so uh, and so this is you know that's really um you know it's limited by by you know the ability to to do these type of experiments and most people are still doing them in you know in uh well-based uh you know 384 well 1536 well you know plates um so it's yeah so we're still at this kind of place where yeah you take your u2os's and you use that as a kind of a yeah a target agnostic yeah. you know kind of um you know detector um to uh to try and uh, and get a uh, uh some sort of common commonly usable you know profile that can be used across different platforms um so i guess you know things like microfluidics and things like this or you know some of these other you know technologies yeah maybe uh, maybe these could be could be useful i think maybe as opposed to trying to yeah i think maybe one way to get it get around this is maybe kind of multi-omics mm -hmm. you know and you know by so as opposed to trying to expand uh, with cell painting across all these different let's say concentration times things like this maybe and that could again could be you know something that you know ai could be used for would be to to try and combine these different you know types of omics technologies and data from different omics technologies i think that might be more useful um and you know so yeah image-based kind of cell painting approach some of these you know um you know cellular mass spec approaches mm -hmm. uh, obviously yeah rna seq for you know gene expression things like this yeah being able to pull all those together and uh, uh and take a multi-omics approach might be might be more useful yeah i think so too i mean if you consider if you would be able to run different kinds of analysis on the same sample then the the value you gain is much higher than uh you know going for different re um, those response um, or whatever 3d and if you just you know multiply those numbers uh, you will need a truckload of, of hard disks to even store image data uh, let alone transfer and process it so that is not just not practical and i know uh, stefan we had a discussion earlier as well on how, how valuable is 3d at the moment and, and should people go for that yeah. and i i always say it depends because in some ways of course it makes sense if you if you don't see structures when you fix you know a certain plane or if you do a projection you have to uh, go 3d and it, it does make sense and this is a, a logically motivated just by uh you know filling some blanks into uh, a grid search of different you know variables um that can interact with each other it's probably a brute force approach that uh, is not as expedient maybe it is uh, but it's not as practical um, in the end to 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 reach your goal. You generate a lot of data. You need a lot of money to process it, and in the end, it was a nice exercise. And what do you do with that afterwards? 
Mm. So are you going to, to reuse it? Are you going to mine it for different purposes? I mean, that is something uh, our clients are also interested in. Okay, so I generate this data for this study. I have a client, um, this client wants to, you know, uh, do some additional uh, readouts on that data, or they are interested in, okay, um, what else are interactions um, or, or uh, relationships um, that can be discovered. And those discoveries can of course be accelerated by AI because many of those patterns humans can't just, can't just see. It's, it's, it's not possible to, to, grasp, to grasp it. And uh, I think that is definitely also a, a future direction of how you can combine different um, you know, uh, technologies to, to enrich the readout. In, in a more meaningful way. Yeah, well, that, that's, that brings me to our outlook. Um, what is What are your opinions? Uh, what are the future aspects of AI, cell painting, 3D, and the use? Let's, let's figure out in, in early pharmaceutical research over the next five years, not, not further, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a tough question because uh, predicting the future is stuff for AI and not for us. <laughs> but um, but I would guess AI would come up with a suggestions or an idea or a fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the outlook would be that once the adoption happens and we are aware of where exactly the value can be generated using those tools uh, diligently and meaningfully. Uh, this can tremendously accelerate um, research in this domain and at the same time cut down the cost because uh, you will be able to, if used correctly, uh, detect and determine uh, potential pitfalls in the next but or the next but one step um, that you will hit uh, down the line when, I don't know, bringing a drug to market, for example. And uh, also in terms of, you know, scaling up um, experiments, ex scaling up um, uh, research processes across different sites, standardizing your toolkit. This is all, you know, um, possible, but I mean, standardizing tools has been around for a long time. You can you can ensure if you have the proper QC and QM system in place that everybody uses the same tooling. But what was lacking back then and what is enabled by AI now is fast improvement in iteration. So if you figure out, okay, your tool, uh, your ruler, for example, is bent, then you probably need something to fix it or a new ruler. And uh, with AI, with this ad adoptive um, thinking, you can basically create your new ruler that fits your new uh, requirements much faster and with less efforts that has been possible before. Yeah, I think, you know, as a, in the next five years, um, it's really about, yeah, again, kind of increasing the efficiency, identifying, let's say, problem molecules or problem compounds, dumping them out at an earlier stage. Um, so that, yeah, it's about this, you know, having a higher chance of getting something more quickly through, um, uh, uh, through the process. Um, yeah, not having to, you know, be having only to, let's say, make 
250 molecules as opposed to 3,000 molecules to get to where you want to be. And yeah, I, you know, when, when, yeah, if you can do that, that's an enormous, you know, benefit. Um, because all of those things, all those molecules have to be tested in so many, you know, uh, different types of experiments. Um, you know, if you can cut down on, you know, or eliminate, you know, animal use, um, uh, it, it, yeah, it, that would be of a, of enormous uh, benefit. I think that's the type of thing that could be, you know, we could get towards over the course of, of uh, uh, you know, of like the next five years or so. Perhaps also the the way we work with the AI uh, will definitely influence mm -hmm. how fast this adoption will happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, this these generative approaches that are currently hyped in the news um, in terms of you know uh, text generation, NLP, all of that. Um, there are you know light tower projects uh, in the in the life science domain that can generate you know protein folds and and, and you know predict uh, stuff like this. So I think it's in in both. So approaching from both ways, uh, coming up with innovative uh, or letting AI produce innovative new structures and at the same time improve the, the standard, how you measure the effects of those things uh, will definitely uh, accelerate also on, in the short term. You don't have to wait for, for 10 years. The technology is already here. And this is a good point, Philip, what you said that um, AI will evolve and also the the user interface, how you deal with AI is, is getting better and better and more efficient for us in the way how humans are interacting with these artificial intelligence tools so that it is also can become a common use for the common people or the common scientists that the biologist and the pathologist can use this tool more intuitively as it is already used. I think this is a, a good try. If, if, if people are interested in having a look at, you know, where all this could eventually lead us, I would recommend a, uh, a science fiction series by a Scottish writer called Ian M. Banks. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so he's written a whole bunch of books. He died in 2013. Um, but uh, he wrote a bunch of books based around uh, a thing called the culture. And it's where these, you know, advanced AIs, uh, they're actually placed in interstellar you know, spaceships uh, are called mines. And we've become so advanced that the mines, these AIs take care of everything. And humans are just free to live their best lives and, uh, and uh, you know, engage in things like advanced body modification and things like this. So <laughs> that's, that's uh, yeah, I, I'd recommend the, the culture series, <laughs> you know? They are fun. Yeah. Cool. So this is what happens if uh, you give too much time to people. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Thank you both so much. It was very um, refreshing, exciting, and wonderful to talk to you today. Session. Thank you so much. Have a good day. And okay. Thanks a lot, Stefan. Bye bye. Take care. Thank you, Stefan. Thanks, David. Thank you for joining and for staying with us until the end. Enjoy your day, your evening, and take care. Hear you soon. Bye-bye.